Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. I'm Mitch Dubin, and I'm a motion picture camera operator. I've done a lot of projects with Steven Spielberg, and I think it's attributed to the fact that I'm good at what I do. I also understand Steven's sense of his vision, how he wants to use the camera. Monetizing Your Creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your creative talents? Film is a collaborative process. I mean, you cannot make a movie by yourself. I mean, you can think you can, but the reality is, is that you need people to help you make a movie. And I always tell people that if you really want to be successful in this business, you have to be good at what you do and you have to be a nice person. We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. I'm your host, Marvin Polis, and not joining me this time is Fred Keating, because although he is our co-host, he's actually in Toronto right now working on a project, but I'm in Banff, Canada, and I'm at the Story Summit, which is being hosted by the Alberta Media Production Industries Association and the Banff Centre. It's a lovely venue. There are many people here from around North America and a few from other parts of the world as well to talk about storytelling. And with me is a member of the Monetizing Your Creativity team because, well, Fred isn't here. We thought we'd add another voice. We have Zach Polis. Hi there. Pleased to be here. And with us as our special guest for this episode is Mitch Dubin. He's a motion picture camera operator, and he does wonderful work. Mitch, welcome. Thank you. Something that's really notable about Mitch is that he's worked on the last 14 or so Steven Spielberg films. So he's worked on Oscar-nominated projects. He's worked on Oscar award-winning projects, some of the best A-list movies that have ever been produced. This really speaks to something I want to get into, Mitch, which is relationships. This is a relationship business. There's a reason that you've been called back to work on these projects, not only for Spielberg, but for other producers as well. What's the magic? For sure, it's important that film is a collaborative process. I mean, you cannot make a movie by yourself. I mean, you can think you can, but the reality is, is that you need people to help you make a movie. So I have talents as a camera operator, but one of, I would think, the main talents that a camera operator needs to have is to be a nice person. And I always tell people that if you really want to be successful in this business, you have to be good at what you do and you have to be a nice person because you're spending 12 hours a day standing next to all these people and there's a lot of screaming and yelling. And it's um, you have to be able to work well with, uh, to play well with your friends, you know. So it, it is, it, it really much, it's a uh, business of relationships. What are some of the strategies that you use to get along with other crew members? I think the the big evil of being an employee in the film business is letting your ego get involved. There are a lot of egos in terms of making movies. I think that you have to learn to let your ego go, that you can't let that bother you, you can't let it affect you personally, you can't feel demeaned. I mean, you just have to... You have to, especially because as a camera operator, you have to be really spontaneous, really intuitive to the process of what you're seeing, what the actors are doing, what the shot is, that you can't be thinking about yourself even, and you can't be thinking about what somebody else might be thinking. So um, you really have to leave your ego at the door. You just want a good product, and you want to 
play a, a, a good team sport. Yeah, it, 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 the important thing is to let all this extraneous conversation just roll off and not to let it affect you, don't internalize it, and just to uh, be present with the task at hand. Now tell us about the dynamics of what goes on on the movie set with such a large crew. How does this work? It's pretty insane at times. Um, it's like a circus, a traveling circus. It's not a, a huge industry. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of movies being made, but relatively speaking, you, know, you tend to work with a lot of the same people because it's not a huge, it's such a specialized craft. And so, you know, it might take you three years, but you'll go through different crews and then all of a sudden you're back again with the crew that you've worked with before. Uh, certainly on Steven's movies, we work with the same people a lot because he likes to have familiar faces around. You know, we start with the script and uh, sometimes storyboards, sometimes previs, but usually it's just the script. You know, a day would be... You show up at a, you know, your call time. You get a call sheet the night before. You show up at the call time. The call sheet has the scene that you're going to be shooting, the page count, what the order is going to be, what the location is going to be, where you're going to be traveling from, all the actors that will be working, what time all the calls are for the various crew members. You show up at that location. You're usually given what they call sides, which is like a little miniature version of what the script you're going to be doing, the pages of the day. You look at them. The actors will rehearse. I'm usually invited in, not everybody, but uh, certain people are invited into the rehearsal with the director and the actors to figure out how to take that two-dimensional aspect of the script into a three-dimensional storytelling with the camera, blocking the action out, the actors feeling comfortable with the lines. Um, Once that's all worked out and we understand how we're going to film the scene, the actors will go off into hair and makeup, we set up the cameras and the lighting, and then the actors come back in, and we do our first setup. Sometimes, often with a director, a strong director like Steven, we do take one or take two, and then all of a sudden he says, oh, I've got another idea, I've got a great idea, and we change everything. And we uh, and uh, the shot that once was a really simple shot becomes a much more complicated shot, but those are the challenges what's, that makes the job fun. And you just go through one shot at a time. That's what the other important thing that's important to remember about filmmaking is it's all done one shot at a time. It's one thread of a tapestry that you do. In the end, you have this beautiful work, this beautiful tapestry, but you really just did it one thread at a time. Because if you were to look at that tapestry, which you do sometimes, you know, once you're done with it and you say, oh, my God, if I had known what was involved in that, project I never would have undertaken it but when you just think of it as one shot at a time it's much more doable. Now clearly there are many many moving parts to a production many people involved so many of these steps are planned out in advance now as I read between the lines what that's suggesting to me is that an important personality attribute for anybody in the crew is reliability. Yes because yes reliability is very important especially behind the camera Oftentimes, you could say that the camera operator, the camera crew, is another actor in the scene. We have to perform. When they say, when the director says action, he's not just talking to the actors, he's talking to the cameraman as well. And the only difference is if the actor flubbed the line, it's, you know, he's forgiven. But if the camera crew messes up the shot, they, they get yelled at. So, uh, but you know, the process of acting is a, is a really... Uh, and, you know, I've come to learn through the years of doing it is a very 
magical process. I could never be an actor. And I don't even know if you can really learn to be an actor. I think you're born being an actor. And it's some mystical process that happens where these people can transform themselves into these sympathetic, understandable characters. And it happens, and it happens in moments that you have to capture. And if you miss those moments of of magic or these moments of beauty because of a technical issue or because you made a mistake, it could be a big tragedy. So, yes, reliability is really important. Naturally, a script and actors are the heart of what a story is, but you also mentioned that the camera is an actor in itself and the camera brings a lot of energy and life to a story. So how do you use the camera to enhance the emotion of the story? That process of taking a script and, and turning it into a, a, a visual story is a discovery process. The, that process happens from the moment the actors start reading the lines that are written in the script and the improvisation that they might do. You know, as the person behind the camera, there are choices that you make. I mean, every lens millimeter that you put on tells a different story. Every position you put the camera has a different perspective. Every way you move the camera has a different emotion. All of it is an intuitive response to what you're seeing. There will be a lot of discussion with the director or with the cinematographer, depending on the relationship of that particular project, but let's say with the director where certain things that need to be highlighted for that shot. And actually operating the camera, there's there's two ways, two distinct styles. And one of them is very objective, which is very quiet, which is the audience really doesn't even really notice what it is the camera's doing. It's very quiet, passive approach that you're recording the scene. But even though you're still making choices, thousands of choices every shot, what you keep out, what you keep in, you know, the height, the millimeter, all those things are choices, artistic, intuitive choices, but you do it in a quiet way. And then the other style of camera operating is very subjective, which is that it's a point of view. It's like, it's like the handheld D-Day footage on, you know, Saving Private Ryan, because we wanted the audience to feel as if you are on the beach with them. The camera is another character in the scene. So those are basic choices you make right at the start once you've seen the rehearsal, is whether it's going to be objective or subjective style of camera. And again, it's all it's collaboration. It's collaborating with the actors. It's collaborating with the director. It's collaborating with the cinematographer. It's collaborating with the dolly grip, the person that's, that's pushing you around on the camera. It's collaborating with the camera assistant who's pulling focus, and there's, there's creative decisions that you make with the focus as well. So it's a lot of people. Now, Mitch, as I look through your list of credits, we just can't even start to go through and talk about the, the many films that you've been involved in. So I would really recommend to our listeners that they look you up on IMDb to get a sense for this uh, wonderful resume that you have. Something that I wanted to ask you about, though, is how did you get into the business? And how do you recommend that young people take a shot at this? Well, first I'll say that, yes, I, you know, I have been really privileged in my career to have had the opportunity to work on good movies, but mainly I've been really privileged in my career to have had the privilege to work with such talented people all the way from, you know, from craft service person to, uh, you know, directors and producers. I, I love my job. It's great. It's fun. And part of that is because I've been, I've had the opportunity to work on some really great projects. 
But my the story of how I started in the in the business is sort of it's interesting maybe for some of your your listeners. But I started very first. I I went to film school. Actually, I'm gonna take it back a notch. When I was in high school. I used to love going to the movies. It was just my favorite thing was to go to the theater and sit there and watch movies. And one day, I don't remember which movie it was, but all of a sudden the film's over and the crawl of the end credits came up. And it was the first time that I realized, I said, wow, those are human beings. Those are names of people. Those names that I see on the screen were responsible for making the movie that I just saw. And I realized that would be a lot of fun. That's what I'd like to do. I want to be one of those people. I don't want to be one of the actors, but I want to be one of the people that's behind the scenes making it. I didn't know what exactly. I just knew that I wanted to be involved in making movies. So I went to film school. At the school, at the university I was attending, there was this great still photographer named Gary Winogrand. If you're into still photography, you'd recognize his name, a great photographer of the 60s and 70s who passed away you know, in his prime, but he was a great photographer, a very opinionated New York rough street photographer, and he taught me about images more than I ever learned in, in film school to understand and respect the four lines of the frame. Anyway, I graduated from film school without any idea of how to get a job, what to do. Um, I moved out to the Bay Area in California to be with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I ended up painting gingerbread houses for a dollar each and a janitor at the art school doing anything to make some money, but having absolutely no idea how it was ever going to accomplish what my dream was, which was to work in the film business. But I was patient, and I was in the Bay Area, and it was really, I think, fate more than anything that a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend said, hey, I hear that they're hiring people at Zotrop Studios, which is in San Francisco, Francis Coppola's studios, because they're, they're about to start post-production on Apocalypse Now. So I went in to interview, and fittingly, as the film industry is, I went in that afternoon for an interview and ended up working all that night. <laughs> and they hired me, and I worked the whole night. And it was a great place for me to get my first experience of what the film industry was about. It was... A, it was sort of anti-Hollywood. It was in the Bay Area, San Francisco. Francis had visions of creating his own studio and hiring directors and young people and sort of getting out of the studio system. And I met a lot of great people. I learned a lot of things. And so I was a PA, production assistant. It was the entry-level job of anybody in the film industry. But one of my jobs as a PA was I was in charge of sticking inventory stickers on all the equipment, whether it was split reels, movieolas, flatbed editors, but Francis also purchased two 35-millimeter cameras when he went to the Philippines. And when they came back, it was my job to put the stickers on them and store them someplace. And then months later, when they went out to do reshoots, first time was uh, on The Black Stallion, which was a great film, and they needed to go do some additional photography. And Francis said, okay, well, you got to use, use these cameras. And... They went to get them, and they, they said, Mitch, they need the cameras. And I had no idea what the cameras were, but I knew where they were. And, and they said, well, why don't you just come out with us, and you could be a camera PA. So I had spent all these early months in dark editing rooms and screening cuts and projecting you know, prints. And I remember the very first day on the set, it was on the coast in Oregon, as the horse runs through the surf and 
Kelly Reno, the, the the character, the boy character in the film, riding the horse for the first time. And it was just immense. It was, you know, ocean, surf, big titan, crane, horses, and cameras. And, and it was thrilling. It was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. It was like, this is the moment where it's created, and I wanted to do this. And so I realized I didn't really want to do post-production. I wanted to be involved with cameras. So I started as a camera PA, and I went through, you know, a second assistant camera and a first assistant camera, and now as a camera operator, which is the best job on the set, so I'm happy as a camera operator. But, yeah, you know, so it happened, circumstantial happened by fate, but if you're good at what you do and you're a nice person, you're going to be successful. You'll work. It's a different industry now than when I started, but I still think that law still is in effect. Yes, I mean, when you're a nice person, people want to give you opportunities. They want to see you excel, and they're going to do what they can for you. Absolutely. One of the this year's Academy Awards, one of the cameramen that was nominated for an Oscar was Ed Lockman for Carol. And Ed actually was the first person who gave me a break as actually a camera assistant because I was working at Zotrop Studios, Vim Vendors, a German director uh, who's made a lot of great films, if you don't know him, was doing a film for Francis called Hamlet. He was working at Zotrope, and he decided that he needed to make another movie while he was prepping, and it was a film with Nick Ray. And it was the same thing. Francis said, okay, go ahead, you can do this, but take the cameras, and if you take the cameras, you got to take Mitch. And so, you know, it was my first experience actually on a set not as a PA, but as a loader. Ed Lockman was the DP. Ed was great for me. I mean, I started off as, you know, being the guy who had the cameras to being the loader. We sort of had a lot of stops and starts on the production. Every time we came back, someone would drop out in the camera department, and then I became the second assistant. And then one day, the first assistant doesn't show up, and Ed said, okay, Mitch, you you get on the focus. And I was petrified. And... um, there's no way I can do this. And I get on, and I did a really good job. And I said, "That you did great, Mitch. You have the instinct for this. You know, if you ever decide to move to New York, I'll hire you as, your, as, a, as my first assistant, which I did eventually after we finished One from the Heart. And I worked with Ed for a number of years as his focus puller. And then one day he offered me a job to move up to camera operating on a film called Making Mr. Right. And again, I was completely petrified and nervous that I was going to, this was my opportunity and I was going to screw it up and I was a nervous wreck. But I will never forget that first day of shooting on Making Mr. Right. The camera's set up, it's on the dolly, I get on the dolly seat and I put my eye to the eyepiece and it all made perfect sense that I understood exactly those four lines of the frame and what it meant to operate the camera, what the image through the lens was going to look like, and what it it conveyed and felt, the emotion of the story. I got it. You know, Mitch, as I listen to your story, something really comes clear to me, and it's part of what we've talked about a lot on our podcast, and that is that serendipity is an important thing. It's perfectly rational for you to go to film school if you want to enter in a into a career in in the film business. But as you leave film school, your first job is not going to be a DOP for Spielberg or Coppola. It's going to be a junior job. Get your foot in the door any way you can, and then count on good relationships and serendipity to help you get into the job that you really want. Am I reading this correctly? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is serendipitous. You know, my first job was through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. I mean, after going through film school and coming out unemployed film school without any idea how to get a job, this job sort of materializes. But the point, it, it is serendipity. But at the same time, you have to take the risk. you got to take the leap. You have to trust yourself that you can do it. Take advantage of opportunities that are presented to you. Mitch, another thing that I wanted to touch on is the reality that for people who work in this industry, it's really a freelance lifestyle, isn't it? There aren't any jobs, or at least there aren't many jobs in the traditional sense of the word. Tell us about this. There are no job guarantees in the film industry, and it's one of the things that I had to become comfortable with in my career as a camera operator. And if you choose to you know, enter the film industry, which is a great industry, you have to be comfortable with the insecurity of what that means, that there is no, not always a job lined up after the job you just completed. There's no guarantee of a paycheck. There's not always even guarantee that you're going to be in the union, you're going to get your health benefits and the luxuries that people that work for large corporations might have. But once you become comfortable with that freelance lifestyle, it, it provides benefits that other people don't have, which is that you work really hard, really long hours for a project that lasts three months, and then you might have off a month or two or three that's your time to do whatever you might want, maybe your own personal project or travel or whatever. Working a freelance lifestyle can be very scary at times, but once you grow comfortable with it, it's rewarding. It's, I love working that way. And what goes along with that is you want to be asked back for the next project. You want your reputation to get out there, and people that you've never worked with before, you want them to ask you to come and work on their projects. So as we've talked about, it means you have to work really hard. You need to do good work. You need to be really good at what you do. And you have to be likable. So people will ask you to work on their projects and want you to work on their projects. And and absolutely. And sometimes it, you might end up not being asked back. And that's can be painful, but then you have to realize that there are a lot of extenuating circumstances why that might happen. It might not necessarily have anything to do with how good you did the job or your personality, your style of working and collaborating. It could just be that, the, you know, the producer's son wanted a job and, you know, he's obviously the producer, so he gets his son on the job. So you shouldn't be discouraged if you don't always get asked back. All you can ask for is that you do the best job you can. And, and try your hardest. And indeed, Spielberg's team, for example, has asked you back 13, 14 times. Uh, again, I'm losing count. What do you attribute that to? I've done a lot of projects with Steven Spielberg, and I think it's attributed to the fact that I'm good at what I do. I also understand Steven's sense of his vision, how he wants to use the camera. And he likes to have familiar faces around because when you're working on a project, there's a lot of shorthand communication that needs to happen. And Stephen works really fast. He, he works very fast. And I understand what Stephen wants. And every job I do, I understand more and more the little innuendos, the, the little things that he says that other people don't get. But I said, I, this is, I understand what Stephen really wants to do with this shot. So, um, you know, experience says a lot. And experience with working with the same people really helps a lot, too. So you need to be good at communication, and in fact, even nonverbal communication. I would say it is probably the most important thing of being a good camera operator. I mean, 
panning and tilting the camera is the simplest, most basic aspect of what the job I do. Really, what I do is communicate with all parties involved. You know, if there is a problem with the shot, I have to identify it immediately and communicate to the people that need to know how to fix the problem. I have to communicate to the director if the shot works well or if it's not, if we have to go again or what changes we need to make. I need to have to communicate with the actors if they're not on their marks and how best that they hit their, get, you know, the best light on their face. You have to communicate to the dolly grip what you know, the, the style, pace, and position of where the camera needs to be, whether it's on the crane or on a dolly, the camera system that's pulling focus. It's all about communication, completely about communication. And as I mentioned, some of it's nonverbal, right? Because sometimes if you're communicating and you speak something, you're going to botch the sound. So I suspect that you have little hand gestures or the, the way that you look at somebody actually communicate something and, and you just all understand each other. Yeah, especially that look of panic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, absolutely. There's a lot of nonverbal. I mean, a lot of the communication happens in the preparation for the take, you know, the, what you do to prepare for the shot. But then, you know, when, again, when they say action, the people on the camera are actors as well, and we have to perform. And if something changes, if, if an actor is improvising and he goes a different place, everyone has to be in tune with what that is. And Hopefully everyone's in sync because we've all worked together before and everyone's a professional. But if not, that's when the looks of panic might happen or the little thumb up or the left or right or, you know, whatever nonverbal communication skills you have come into effect. It seems to me that grace under pressure is really important in this business. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting process operating the camera. And a good way to describe it is if you ever are walking through a film set, let's say it's on location in your neighborhood, and there will be blocks and blocks of trucks filled with, you know, various equipment, prop sound, wardrobe, hair, makeup, trailers. And as you walk past all these trucks, as you get closer to the set, it becomes more of a frenzy, like a beehive of activity. And it gets to be more and more frenetic until you reach that one spot where the camera is, and all of a sudden it's quiet and it's calm. What I do as a camera operator is like sitting in the eye of a hurricane because all this activity is happening around you, but that place where the camera is has to be this sort of zen process of of calm and no ego where you're focused on the shot at hand without any distractions where the actors can perform without any interference in the shot happens in this magical quiet professional way so you're filtering out all of the mayhem and really needing to concentrate on the task at hand that's a special skill. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not earplugs. It's just, as we talked about earlier, you have to not let your ego get in the way. You have to be incredibly present to what's happening around you, which is the actors and, and, the, and the collaborative process of all the other people that are helping to make this shot possible. But yes, you have to filter out all the extraneous dialogue and noise and the zillions of things that are happening not just physically, but also emotionally. I mean, you have to be, you have to, you have to be calm and confident. Well said. Yes, people who are good in this business are good at concentrating, good at filtering, good at grace under pressure. And, and I want to mention again the confidence aspect. Is what I do behind the camera. I have to have complete confidence in because if I second guess myself, then I will 
be late. In other words, if an actor does something and, and I'm not there right with them because I'm thinking about what I should be doing or what someone else thinks I should be doing, then I'll screw up the shot. So it's in, really important that when you're behind the camera, you have utmost confidence in what you're doing and you never question or second guess yourself. So along the way, did you have mentors who left a profound effect on you? Have they imparted wisdom to you that has helped you become a better camera operator? Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned a few, you know, starting with, you know, Gary Winogrand was was a huge influence and help for me. Ed Lockman was a huge help for me. I remember doing a film at Zotrip Studios called One from the Heart, which Vittoria Storaro was the DP for. And what I remember most about it was Vittoria's operator. It was a gentleman named Enrico Umatelli. And Enrico was this fabulous camera operator, very distinguished, very stylish. And I remember just watching him on the camera, and I still was a, you know, pretty much just a camera PA at this time. And I'd watch him work his magic behind the camera. And then I said to myself, I want to be that person. I want to be Enrico Umatelli. Enrico was great to me. I mean, it's not that he really gave me any specific you know, career tools, but he just the fact that he was nice to me and that he understood my ambitions and that he was a generous human being said everything to me, you know. So now that's what I try. That's how I try to behave. I try to behave like Enrico Umatelli. And uh, I know that everybody wants my job because camera is a great job. And, you know, I, I like to share the knowledge when I can to be involved in the SOC, which is the Society of Camera Operators, and just to be open to whatever questions people might ask me, or just to be nice and talk to people. Okay, Mitch, the mentor, we'll take you up on that. What would be your best advice for somebody who wants to work in the entertainment business and the production business, regardless of their particular discipline, whether they happen to be a musician, a camera operator, whether they're an actor? What advice would you have that really carries across everything. Yeah, I, I do have to say that the film industry is a industry that's in transition. And I think it it always has been and always will be. I remember when I first started in the business, the more experienced crew members would always grumble about how it used to be much better and too bad you didn't know it then. And I know now I can say that for sure the industry that I work in now is much different than the industry that I started in. That's the point. It changes. And the, the, the new people that are coming into the industry will figure it out, how they make it work for themselves. It will be different than how I made it work, but it will be suitable for how it works for your aesthetic, for your ideas. And so, But the only thing in common between my industry in the industry that exists today and people coming into it is is just to follow your passion. This is what you want to do. you got to do it. You know, you'll make it work. You'll figure it out. It's going to be different, but you just do it. Grab it and take action and do it. You know, you have to take the risk. Wonderful words to end on. Thank you for joining us, Mitch. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Monetizing Your Creativity. Be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave a review. It helps us with our ratings. You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity. 